Welcome to Disney Deciphered, a podcast helping you save money, time, and stress as you plan your Disney vacation. On today's episode, Leslie got the chance to go to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge in Disneyland, so we talk about our overall impressions. What's good about the land, what's bad about the land, and how did she feel about the land overall before it's fully operational? Final episodes of the podcast at DisneyDeciphered.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere you find podcasts, and we'd really appreciate it if you leave us a positive review. Connect with us anytime at www.deciphered on Twitter, DisneyDeciphered at gmail.com, or on our Facebook page, Disney Deciphered. This episode's going to release a little bit early and replace our regular episode for the week, but we'll be back next Wednesday with another episode for you. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Till the spire. Hi, I'm Joe from As The Joe Flies. And I'm Leslie from Trips With Tykes. And welcome back to Disney Deciphered. So Leslie, you got to go to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge both for the media preview and on opening day. Did you or did you not survive? I am surviving. You can probably hear in my voice, it's about an octave or two lower than it usually is. I just landed an hour ago, returning from Southern California home. I got about four hours of sleep last night, four hours the night before that. So I am exhausted and moderately incoherent. So this is the time to record a podcast, right? For sure. And thank you for uh, doing the hard work, both uh, right now and also uh, I know you recorded some daily updates and kind of like a live trip report audio while you were there at Disneyland for our Patreon subscribers, who I'd like to thank right now. We had a couple of new Patreon subscribers, Glennis and D. Thank you so much for subscribing. Everyone who's a Patreon subscriber will get live trip reports from us when we're in the parks. Those of you who are the Disney Decipherer level and above will also get our Disney Deciphered Unfiltered episodes. I also want to give a quick shout out and thank you to Tiffany S., who gave us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button on our website. Uh, Thank you so much, Tiffany, for your donation as well. So if you're interested in signing up uh, or subscribing, you can check us out on patreon.com slash Disney Deciphered. But enough about all that. Leslie, let's talk about the land. Uh, Let's start. Let's... I don't even know where to start. I think let's leave the ride to the end so that if anyone doesn't want to get spoiled, you know, they don't have to do that. But other than that, I don't know where to start. Okay, so where to start? Like, let's start with basics, just in case folks have not been following the Disney news like we uh, we do. It is Star Wars Galaxy's Edge just opened in Disneyland. There is an equivalent land that's going to be opening in Walt Disney World August 29th, which is, which is why we're paying so much attention to it here. The lands are basically identical, and the reservation you know periods and the entrance options are not going to be the same. But there's some lessons learned, I think, that will definitely apply to Walt Disney World. So... I was there for the media preview on May the 30th. I was there on opening day. Disneyland has implemented a reservation period for the first three-ish weeks. So you actually have to have a reservation to enter the land. They are doing this to obviously control crowds and make sure they don't overwhelm the land and overwhelm the entire park, actually. And the first thing I guess I should say is that the reservation period was wildly effective. In fact, it suppressed crowds so much that I have never seen the rest of Disneyland so empty as I did on opening day. It was kind of crazy. So I think Disney <laughs> is probably saying now like, hey guys, come on back. We're still open for business. But um, that was funny to see. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about it yesterday. I, I guess what happened was people who had a reservation went to Disneyland and everyone else just avoided 
figuring that Star Wars Galaxy's Edge opening was going to be insane. But because Disney seemed to have limited its reservations, uh, it was not insane. So that's why the parks looked so empty. I was looking at even uh, California Adventure wait times. That's the second park in Disneyland, if you're not familiar. And their wait times were low, too. I think Radiator Springs was like 40 minutes at the highest. So just kind of a little bit of a bizarre Disneyland day. Um, But I think probably for the best in the short run. Yeah, I think so. And I think word will get out about how empty Disneyland was on that opening day and things will bounce back even in a day or two or three or four. So, but yeah, you know, I guess if you're, if you're hearing this right away, make the mad dash to Disneyland. But yeah, it, it was, it was bizarre because everybody who, who was there was, was in Galaxy's Edge. And, and I did have, as I mentioned, uh, I think I mentioned two reservation periods. I was in from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. and then again from 8 p.m. until midnight. And I only was able to do this because I had an on-property hotel stay that entitles you to one. And then I also was able to get one in the public lottery. So that was highly, highly unusual. And so we should note that Disney World is not going to have this reservation system. So I still think the crowds are going to be pretty high on opening day in Orlando, which is going to be August 29th. That being said, Leslie, I regret it so much not coming to this that I did book a hotel reservation on site at Disney World around that time. I did not ask for permission. I have not even spoken to my wife yet. There's a high likelihood of cancellation, but I don't know. I was incredibly jealous, really because of the crowds. If if it had been crazy and a crush of crowds, you know, I wouldn't have been jealous. But the fact that the lines were so short, Smuggler's Run was at like five minutes at some points during the day, uh, five to 10 minutes. So, you know, major regrets, major FOMO. Well, well, let me at least make you feel a little bit better. It, it wasn't that way during my reservation period. Um, we had we saw it spike up to ninety minutes, and this is a function of how the overlapping reservation windows work in Disneyland. But I, I think the lesson is going to be that the Disney World lesson that we're going to learn is going to come from when. Disneyland opens up on uh, June 24th and they implement the virtual queue. Then we'll see what crowds are really going to be like. Then we'll see what capacity limits Disney is really putting on the land. This felt a little soft opening-esque. Even then, there were choke points. I mean, there definitely were choke points in Galaxy's Edge. So um, maybe we should talk about some of those (laughs) because those will be happening in Disney World too, unless Disney sort of implements a different system. Yeah, that's a good idea. Let's start out with the negatives crowds-wise, since there's a lot of positive things that you're going to have to say about Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, obviously. So where did things get difficult in the land to navigate? I know number one is Ogos Cantina, which is sort of like the Batu version of the cantina on Tatooine from New Hope. That was definitely a bottleneck. Yeah, I'd say that probably was the biggest choke point of Galaxy's Edge. And let me just be clear, Ogos Cantina is amazing. We have to, we've talked about often how much of a fan I am of Trader Sam's. This is like, you know, Trader Sam's, not in the South Seas, but instead on the edge of the galaxy. It's awesome. You know, they're souvenir tiki style mugs and the drinks are innovative and there's DJ Rex spinning tunes that are very similar to the soundtrack and a new hope. Is that an animatronic? Yeah. I've been like avoiding, I've been avoiding, I've been essentially avoiding all pictures except for yours and Tom Bricker's from Disney tourist blog and random stuff that I see on Twitter. Um, but even that I've been trying to scroll too quickly, but I did see some kind of DJ that looked like an animatronic or an alien. Like I didn't even look super closely because I've been trying to avoid. So is that what DJ Rex is? Yeah. So he's a droid. Um, yeah. Animatronic. So 
moves like a robot, spin, spins around, and is voiced by the incomparable Paul Rubens. So just like just like he was in Star Tours of old. Really, really cool. We loved it. You're, of course, limited, though, to, at least right now, to a 45-minute time and a two-drink limit. But that was plenty of time. But the problem was the line. The line was getting so long that cast members were cutting it off. They weren't even letting you get in line. So people would hang around and try to sort of wait and see when the cast members would open the line. And this created like this kind of crowd of people over in one corner and they were kind of blocking walkways and it was not great. And then once we actually, it took me three times to actually get in the line, just navigating that process. And then once I was in the line, it was a 50 minute wait. So I don't know what Disney can do entirely to make it better. Because- it looks pretty small, right? Yeah. I mean, the cantina is the size the cantina is going to be. They can't expand it. I mean, they can implement a better lining up system. Maybe they can have some sort of a virtual queue or a fast pass down the road. But but that, that to me was the choke point. And I think it's, you know, in Disneyland, this is the only place where they serve alcohol. So until and unless they start serving alcohol somewhere else, there's going to be a demand of people who just want to be in Disneyland Park who want to have a drink. So you have to think about that the La Cava tequila of Batu, except for if La Cava tequila was the only option to drink. Pretty crazy. So what other choke points did you see? Um, I'm guessing the ride line for Smuggler's Run probably is a choke point at some points. Yeah, like I said, it spiked to 90 minutes, but most of the time it was around 60 and then it would drop as low as 30. And it very much fluctuated depending upon this sort of reservation period. When one group would, would enter, it would it would spike and then it would go down as some of those people had, had been on it and were done and moved on. And then the next crowd would come in, the overlapping crowd, it would spike again. And that obviously will not be the case. I think it will be, you know, long term or at Disney World, there'll be a steady wait just how long that will be. We don't know. I don't think long-term it's going to be flight of passage length. Yeah. I have to say that. Yeah. The ride is not that epic. Yeah. Well, that, um, which we can get to, but also my guess is like flight of passage is so long because they opened with fast pass because this ride doesn't have fast pass. My guess is it's never going to top like two and a half hours, maybe three hours. And that's going to be on its worst days, at least until they implement fast pass because fast pass is like 90% of the people who are riding the rides have fast pass at some time. So when you're in standby, you're waiting because of all the fast pass people. So I think 90 minutes is not going to be normal when it's open up to everyone, but I'm guessing it's not going to be flight of passage. Just even if the ride was epic, even when rise of the resistance opens, I think when you don't have fast pass, the length of the line is shorter, even though for people like you and me who love trying to fast pass refresh and get those and things like that, like it'll be longer for us. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I, I'm I'm thinking in my in my brain that sixty to one hundred and twenty minutes is going to be the normal. Obviously, not the first week or whatever, but that's what it's going to settle into. That's my guess, at least until Fast Pass starts, and then we have to reevaluate strategy. So, yeah, that was actually not Millennium Falcon. I didn't think I wouldn't put on my top choke points list. I mean, everybody who wanted to do it was able to do it, and if you worked even just a little bit at it you were able to do it twice. So that that to me was not was not so bad. The, the, the other checkpoint I did see, and I did not do it myself, was Savi's workshop, which is where you build your own lightsaber. I mean, opening day, you've got your super fans. Everybody wants to build these $200 lightsabers. And I talked to quite a few people who said the entire process start to finish was well over two hours. Is that the $200 lightsaber? Yeah, the $200 lightsaber. Is that lightsaber. $200 only lightsabers? Like you can't build cheaper ones there? 
No, you can only build, these are nicer metal, higher quality lightsabers. There are plenty of other lightsabers for sale, like kid kid ones in other stores that are, I think there's one as low as $19.99 and another one's like $40. But um, yeah, if you want the, the build your own, it is a $200 process. So not something I'm doing for my kids. Yeah. And I actually, it seemed to me like the shops in general looked pretty small. So I was like thinking that it seems like, you know, if you're going shopping at all, that might end up being a choke point, at least if you're going shopping inside Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, because if I'm not mistaken, they also sell some stuff outside the land. But what's your impression of the shops? Was that like another choke point if you're into the merchandise and stuff like that? So there, first things first, there are there is a lot of merchandise outside the land. Uh, Star Traders in Tomorrowland had some. Launch Bay had some. All of the main shops, World of Disney, you know, the shops on Main Street. And the, the, they there was plenty of Galaxy's Edge merchandise. But if you wanted most of the Batu merchandise, I mean, the the things that were authentic to the land that you did had to have to get that within Galaxy's Edge. The, the there are two major shopping areas in Galaxy's Edge. There's the market where these there are these little stalls like the. Tor- Toy Darian, Toy Maker, and the Creature Stall. And those did get quite crowded. But one thing, I was talking with some friends who were there and we were commenting like how hard it would be if you had a stroller or an ECV to kind of get in and out of those. It would be, I mean, of course there were no kids there on opening day and I didn't see a lot of ECVs either. Yeah, um, Disneyland's not for kids. I mean, come on. No, I mean, it's for like grownups living their Star Wars fantasies. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I think that will be a little bit of a choke point, but it wasn't terrible. Like you could, you could get in and out there. And then the other store, Doc Ondar's Den of Antiquities, where they have just a walls full of Easter eggs and some really cool, unique higher end merchandise. There was a line to get in and out of that, you know, but it, it's almost, it almost was an attraction into it unto itself. So waiting in line for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes to get into that was not so bad. All right. So does that about cover it for choke points? Yeah. And I'd say, I mean, we were worried that, that building your own droid, the $99 droid would be a, you know, a choke point And, that was not as much of one. And in fact, sort of because there were so, that was something that I think more children wanted to do. And because there were so few kids in the land, the lines were not bad for that. So I should, I should at least mention that the, the more budget friendly option has the shorter line. So I consider that a win. Oh, and then are those droids like, do you like walk them like dogs around the land when you're done? Or what do you do with that? That is still a little bit unclear to me. So a friend of mine did build one and she was able to take it out of the box and like put it down on the ground. But I didn't see people like actively, you know, rolling the droid around. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems to me just like people wanted to protect their their merchandise from the, the crowds that were walking around. But it's not clear to me whether Disney intends for guests to do that or not. Yeah. Uh, how tall are those droids? Jeez, maybe, maybe 12 16 inches. Okay. So they're not even yeah, like knee to... height or anything. They're like, no, they're perfect. No. Like foot height for kicking by mistake. <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't kick BB eight, please. Of course. Of course. It's not a soccer ball. Okay. So um, that covers choke points and it sounds like we pretty much covered merchandise as well. So talk to me about the food. Uh, let's talk first, swing back to Oga's cantina. You said it was a great experience in terms of the drinks and the food there. You know, what were your impressions of that? So I tried two drinks, both really good. I mean, very much like Trader Sam's, you're going to get some great uh, cocktails. There's something that's similar to a Mai Tai. There's, you know, the Fuzzy Tauntaun and all of these other great names. They, some of them you can buy in a souvenir tiki mug, which I did. 
And uh, food-wise, there's no food other than one snack mix, which I forgot to order. I forgot. It was like kind of – it's kind of hidden on the menu and it's like a like a bar mix. And I, a friend had told me it was excellent and that was the, like, the one food in Galaxy's Edge I didn't get to try. And I'm kicking myself because I couldn't go back in and try it later once I was done. So there you go. So that's Oga's. So no food there. Really just drinks. Just drinks other than the one snack. And most of the food, the biggest restaurant is Docking Bay 7. That's sort of – the Satuli Canteen of Galaxy's Edge, to give it a Walt Disney World reference point. And the menu is pretty exotic, much like Satuli Canteen as well. There are some short ribs that are kind of spicy. There's what they call tip yip, which is kind of a chicken-ish, like a fried-ish chicken dish. There's chilled noodle salad. And the kids' meals options were, of course, what I paid the most attention to. And there were three. And I came to the conclusion that my kids would only eat one of the three. And that was a little bit of an issue for me. It's, it's too innovative for families who have picky eaters. There was something that resembled kind of a chicken nugget and a mac and cheese. But other than that, my kids are not eating chilled uh, noodles with shrimp. No way. I was seeing pretty lukewarm reviews about the food overall. I mean, is that the impression that you got? I know it sounded like you got to try quite a bit of the stuff that they had on offerings, Not maybe not on opening day, but at least at the media event. No, I actually tried most. Well, no, I tried about half and half on the media event and then half on opening day. The I wouldn't say lukewarm. I'd say better than lukewarm. I mean, I had some good dishes. Uh, Ron, the Ronto Wrap, which is at the you know counter service restaurant nearby to Docking Bay 7, was quite good. And I don't even know, it had like a coleslaw and then like two different meats in it and and wrapped in a pita. That was great. And I heard good things about the breakfast version of that as well, which I didn't get to try because I wasn't in during the morning hours. But yeah, I mean, I thought I would say better than lukewarm, but I wouldn't say it's as good as Pandora at this point. And I I did think that the kids meals options were a problem and that they're going to need to add something to the menu. And uh, oh, and I got to talk about blue and green milk, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's like we heard from some reps at Disney that that was like the most requested thing that guests wanted in a Star Wars land. Like, I want to taste blue milk. So that was something they were super focused on. We should say uh, $8 blue and green milk, by the way. Yes, yes. And it's not milk. It's a smoothie, essentially, a plant-based smoothie. There's coconut and rice milk in it, and it's frozen. And... I would give that lukewarm reviews. <laughs> I I didn't want to drink a whole one. I, I bought it, shared it with friends. I had three sips. That was all I wanted. It was a little, it was sweet, but then ultimately it kind of blanded out on my taste buds. Because of the price or just overall? No, just overall, just like actually what it did. I tasted, I was like, oh, it's sweet. And then you know, as like a dish sits on your tongue. You're like, it gets either gets better or it gets worse. It got worse as it said on my tongue, both of them. Um, not that it was bad. It just wasn't something that I wanted to pay $8 for and drink as a snack. So we covered the food. We covered the merchandise. Let's talk, you know, this is, I guess, getting more into spoiler territory, but we'll s- still save the ride for last. Let me, tell me about your overall impression of the land. You walked into Batu, and you can, I'm not going to look at pictures, but you can tell me everything you want, Leslie. Uh, I'm not going to worry about audio spoilers. So how did you get into the land? What What's that like when you walk in? What are the viewing angles? And you know, tell me about that whole experience. So I was a little short, short change because I came in through a back entrance and not sort of the main way because I was coming in for a media. You poor, um, poor media. I know. <laughs> but the first word I said, and I said it out loud was, wow. I mean, it 
is stunning. I don't want to understate that because, I mean, you know, you've been to Pandora. It's the same thing. This is a franchise that people deeply, deeply care about. It's Pandora, but you care about it. You Pandora, but you care about it. And it was epic in terms of the visuals. So that to me was like the crowning achievement of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge was the setting. The Falcon, when you see that for the first time, I mean, wow. (laughs) So, you know, but you really do feel like you're on like, uh, you know, you're on this remote planet, this outpost with smugglers and first order and resistance. So that like 10 out of 10, no question. Quick aside, I saw lots of pictures of people in front of the Millennium Falcon with like no other people behind them. So I know that the crowds were less yesterday than expected, but I was wondering how did they deal with that logistically? Is there just like a line and is there just like no way for people to be behind the Millennium Falcon? Uh, so it could be that some of those folks were media event folks posting images yesterday. Oh, no, I saw like, I definitely, no, real no, people. I saw real people, yeah. Okay. Um, they, they did have some cast members. Well, they kind of have, you know, the photo pass photograph- photographers like they do in front of the castle, um, sort of standing and kind of creating a little bit of a perimeter and an opening. And, but yeah, they did have some cast members kind of closing people off from going like in the back corner because behind the Falcon is, is the queue for the ride itself. Most of the area behind the Falcon is, is the queue. So you wouldn't really be seeing people back there. Because that's inside, right? kind of behind yeah. a wall. Yeah. Yeah. That's their... They don't actually, the ride isn't actually inside the Falcon. So spoiler alert. Oh my gosh. It's like, <laughs> what the heck? I take everything, I take everything prop. back I said about not spoiling things for me. No, go ahead. It's just a prop. <laughs> just the most amazing prop. So you're not- okay. So it's exactly. possible to get pictures in front of the Falcon. Cause you know, I saw, I mean, it, yeah, very possible. I mean, you know, like if you're not there at like 7 a.m. in front of the castle, it's like impossible to get pictures without people in the background. So I saw a lot of great Millennium Falcon pictures from normal people. Yeah, there's just not a reason, I guess, for people to walk back there because there's nothing to walk through like there is the castle. Smart. Okay, so continue. Uh, Tell me about like just the feel of the land and the touches that you noticed and stuff like that. So, I mean, I think I've touched on it. The There's one side that's um, first order, then the sort of middle is like, the town, the the outpost itself, and then on the far side, near Critter Country in Disneyland at least, is where the Resistance hangs out. And that's where the Star Wars Rise of the Resistance will be. And we could see that, you know, out, outside of the ride and where the queue will be. And um, that side feels very empty to me. I mean, there's nothing going on there. There's a couple of like, there's an X-Wing fighter and, you know, a couple things like that over there, just props. Yeah. And then of course there's the marketplace, which you you feel like it feels like a Moroccan marketplace. I think they used sort of Morocco as like a, a inspiration point. So that was quite fantastic and felt very authentic. But um, yeah, that's, I guess, the theming. So we should probably get to the ride before we like make this an hour long Disney Deciphered episode. Yeah. I think what we should do is finish up your initial impressions here. And then maybe in a few weeks have a second episode just about kind of your general tips for the land. So let's finish that up. Tell me about Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run and start with the ride queue. Because I'm guessing if I'm thinking about Flight of Passage's ride queue, that it's uh, just as amazing. Yeah, the ride queue is, I'd say, 
maybe the highlight or at least as good as the ride itself. So, you know, you go through and, and, uh, you can, there's a viewpoint where you're overlooking the top of the Falcon. You've got to go up a level and you can see on top of it and it's um, super detailed. And then you go into a holding area where Hondo Anaka, who is a smuggler who's hiring you to pilot the Falcon to smuggle some goods for him where he is. And he's an animatronic, much like in Navi River Journey and is amazingly well done. I mean, super lifelike and, you know, there's a great story and a great setting there. So two thumbs up for Hondo. And then you go into a little corridor and find yourself in the Millennium Falcon. I mean, in where the the chess game, the chess-like game is being played. That The first time I got in there, I was like, I mean, you want to spend 10 minutes in there, right? But they don't let you have that much time. <laughs> and everybody wants to sit at the table and get their picture there. And in fact, the first time I was in there, there was not enough time for me to even sit at the table before I was called for my ride. So you kind of have to be aware of that and be be quick on the draw to get your get your photo opportunities in, in that part of the Falcon. So let's get a little bit nerdy. Does it seem like there are multiple of those rooms, like those waiting rooms for people? Yes, there. Ooh, that's a good question. There are at least two because there were two different corridors off of where Hondo Anaka, the Hondo Anaka room was. So, but don't quote me on that. I'm, I'm going to have to double check some schematics or something. Yeah. <laughs> but there were at least two that I personally experienced. I rode six times. Uh, you were actually inside the Millennium Falcon, so uh, there has to be only one. No, yeah, I, there's got to be different ones. And then after you're in that holding room then there are multiple passageways off of that holding room. So um, yeah, there's quite a few different pods, uh, different Falcons that are operating simultaneously. All right. And so then you enter the ride. Is the ride like Star Tours where you're like walking into a kind of white box-like thing? Or, you know, what does the ride vehicle look like? It You feel like you're stepping into the cockpit of the, of the Falcon. I mean, no question. It's very, much smaller, much more intimate. There's six seats only. So two pilots in the front and then two gunners right behind that and then two engineers right behind that and then a center, a center aisle up through the seats. So there are no seats next to each other. We actually thought this was something important for maybe for parents with like, you know, a four-year-old who's riding, like you won't be next to your kid holding their hand if they're scared on this ride. So something to think about, but I mean, you feel like you're in the Falcon and then, you know, the, the windshield is curved and, um, you know, made in the same way as the movie. So it's, it's better than Star Tours thematically. Uh, so I guess two things would be not everyone's facing the same direction and it's not a flat screen, correct? Not a flat screen. Everyone is facing the same direction. So the seats are two by two with behind, you know, behind one another, but with an aisle up the middle. And then what are the like buttons and control situations? Because you're theoretically piloting or gunning or navigating the ship. Right. So the pilots really do the vast majority of everything. I mean, it's superior to be a pilot by a long shot. The left pilot I thought was the best. That's the pilot that controls left to right movement. The right pilot controls up and down. And I got to do both of those. And and that was my favorite position, the left pilot. Then um, gunners are just pressing buttons. They have two options. They can actually press, 
they can choose manual mode or automatic mode. And manual mode actually made my fingers hurt. Like it required too many buttons. And the buttons are either off to your left if you're on the left-hand side or off to your right if you're on the right-hand side. So you're actually turning your head away from the screen to hit the correct buttons and you're missing what's happening on the screen. I did not like that about being gunner or an engineer. You had the same situation where you were you were t- actually turning your not only your head, but even your body at times, especially for that back position, the engineer. You know, fighting off TIE fighters is hard work, Leslie. I mean, come on. I know. But, you know, if especially if you only get a chance to ride this once or twice, you want to see the visuals. And and uh, so it almost made me like not want to do, do those roles. Just, sit <laughs> just let them shoot you. And watch the show. <laughs> yeah. And then the third seat. Yeah. So third seat was engineer. And so there are buttons to push. And there's no, there's just one mode for that. And that's probably the least involved in terms of the number of buttons you have to push, which is good because you have to turn your body the most to do it. Got it. And so then um, the ride itself, is it like Star Tours? Did you get the sense that there are like multiple paths or or is it just like pretty linear with differing branches, depending on whether the gunner decided to enjoy the ride or actually do their job? The, the general path is the same, but there are mul- multiple variations and you actually are piloting the fal- Falcon. So, you know, it does the middle parts change. You kind of have different parts where you get to the same place, but the path you took to get there is a different path based upon how you piloted. But um, the ride is much better if you have a bad pilot. You get more bumps. You have more fun. It's much more fun if you're if you're with people that you know. The first time I rode, I was solo, and it was just strangers in the cockpit with me, and everybody's kind of reticent. It's like this intimate atmosphere, but you don't know the people who you're working with. And when I got to go with friends, like an entire cockpit, cockpit full of friends, it was really rowdy. It was much more fun. Like the ride went from like a five out of 10 to like an eight out of 10, just from the atmospherics of who was in the cockpit. Got it. So overall impressions, just like a updated, better version of Star Tours or something even beyond that? Yeah, I don't think this is going to go down in, you know, Disney history as being like a Radiator Springs racers. It's not that good. I mean, what's so cool about it is just it's the Millennium Falcon and, and you're getting to go into it. The ride experience itself is fine, more like like on the on the level of Star Tours, I would say. All right. So any final thoughts about your trip to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge before we end with the Disney do or don't? Well, I just say that I did have a great time. I know I've, I focus on the negatives a little bit in this recording, but you know that's because I'm trained to do that. Overall, eight out of ten, eight and a half out of ten, maybe if I had to to put a number on it. <sighs> Leslie, who asked you for objectivity? Okay, you're supposed to be drinking the okay. you're just supposed to be drinking the blue milk, as it were. Okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, leave us with a Disney do or don't. A Disney do that I have for everybody. I think it's very important to mobile order before you enter the land. And we'll obviously figure out the operational aspect of this at Disney World. But when I got into the land, all of the mobile ordering windows were booked up for at least an hour. So if I wanted some food right away, it was really hard to do. The lines were long and I couldn't get it via mobile order. So just thinking back, if I had like picked my pickup time before I even entered the land, then I could have kind of scheduled a lunch or a a snack when I wanted to. So I think that is going to be a strategy as demand surges for food to really be a little more strategic about mobile ordering at Galaxy's Edge. Great tip. Um, So we'll have a lot more about Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. You know, I know Leslie is 
strategizing and thinking about her tips. And obviously, this is just for Disneyland right now. And when we get to go in Orlando, uh, you know, we'll be covering that as well. You know, if you want to check that out, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. iTunes doesn't exist anymore, people, or won't soon. So find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you find podcasts. You can also find old episodes at DisneyDecipher.com. And we'd appreciate it if you could please leave us a positive review. Leslie, uh, it sounds like you had a great time. I am jealous. Uh, I do appreciate your objectivity and that you're not saying that this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. I think we should note one thing that you noted in your daily updates, and that is the land still feels incomplete. So it's really tough to like kind of overall judge it. Yeah, that's a good caveat worth having out there. So I guess I'll be back in the coming months when Rise of the Resistance opens up. Awesome. And so, yeah, uh, stay tuned for that coverage. I may release this episode a little bit early. If I do, then episode 69 won't come out until the Wednesday after that. Other than that, Leslie, thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing your experience and I can't wait to check it out for myself. We will talk to everyone else on the next episode. And Leslie, I will see you in front of the Millennium Falcon with nobody behind us. Just a private picture for us. Thanks, Joe. 